good to be with you this morning and to be able to share the word with you this morning and if you have your bibles this morning you can go ahead and open up to genesis and we're going to be in chapter two and chapter three if you were in small group this last week this was the story that we shared in small group and i want us to look at these scriptures and the story in these scriptures and come to understand some things that we need to understand about this whole subject of spiritual warfare as we continue this series on warrior. You know, what we learned a couple of weeks ago was that Jesus taught his disciples that there was a spiritual dimension of reality in this world that we cannot see, we cannot touch it, but it's there. And that this spiritual dimension of reality is having an incredible impact on what goes on in this world. In fact, we learn that Jesus said that this spiritual dimension of reality, uh, reality includes angels and it includes de demons, supernatural beings. And, you know, Jesus didn't have to reveal that to his disciples. He chose to do that. And he had a reason for doing that. And we learned two weeks ago what his reasons were. And I want just to summarize again what we went over two weeks ago, why he taught his disciples about this spiritual dimension of reality. And we saw, first of all, that he wanted his disciples to understand the source of evil in the world. And I'm just going to summarize here. I would encourage you to go back and listen to the message. And then we saw that he wanted his disciples to understand the devil's power in this world. And then we saw he wanted his disciples to be on their guard against the devil's power. And then we saw that he wanted his disciples to understand the devil's strategy. And we saw that he wanted his disciples to know how to overcome the devil. And we, we also saw he wanted his disciples to be warriors. And then we saw he wanted unbelievers to know who they were following. That was two weeks ago. Last week, we began to learn about demonic possession. We learned that Satan does not just want to tempt people to do what is wrong, that he literally wants to control people. He wants to dictate the behavior of people. He wants to use people he controls to kill and steal and destroy. And certainly we see plenty of that happening in our world don't we and so he wants to control in other words uh, Satan is not like a drug dealer who just wants to make a sale Satan is like a leader of a drug cartel who wants to control people this morning that was last week this morning I want us to learn how the devil gains control of people's souls 
And so to accomplish this, I want us to begin this study in Genesis 2, 15 through 18, and Genesis chapter 3 and verses 1 through 24. And I'm just going to read the story to you from these passages of Scripture. Uh, every detail in these verses is important, and I want you to hear them. And so let me read to you this morning from Genesis 2, 15 through 18 first, and then we'll move on to Genesis 3, 1 through 24. In Genesis 2.15, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good, then, that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So I want you to understand this morning, first of all, that the instruction about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil first came to the man before the woman was even made. And then in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 24, the Bible says this, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And she answered and said, to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And so Adam had communicated the message, right, to his wife Eve, or she wouldn't even known, apparently, what, anything about this particular tree. And then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a, and a tree that was desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And then it says that the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves coverings. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife, it says, they, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the, of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me, and so I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you're cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. 
In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. I want you to remember that Adam had been given the authority to name all the living creatures upon the earth. And he did. And whatever name that Adam gave them, that's what they were called. And then it says here that he called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. So Adam named Eve. That's an unusual marriage arrangement, isn't it? And also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. That's very important. That verse right there is critical. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I want us to focus this morning on how Satan gained control of the first man and the first woman. And I want to say to you that his strategy has not changed much. We're told in the epistles that are written to the church of Jesus that we're supposed to be aware of the schemes of the enemy. Well, this was the very first scheme. This was the very first strategy. And so I want us to understand the strategy of our enemy, and I want us to learn how to resist him. So what we can see about how Satan gained control is, first of all, Satan gained control of mankind by tempting them to do that which God forbids. This story is the first spiritual battle ever fought between mankind and Satan. The Bible tells us that God created Adam and Eve, and he gave them, the first man and the first woman, dominion over the earth and every living thing upon the earth. It says this in Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then it says, let them, he's talking about the first man and first woman, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you need to understand that, that many times the, the word of God uses the word man generically, and it's not talking about uh, gender. It's talking about mankind, and it's talking about men and women. Male and female, he created them in his image. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So Adam and Eve were given authority by God to be the first rulers and caretakers of the earth under his authority. And God gave them specific instructions uh, for the way that they should rule. And in those instructions, there was one tree in the garden that Adam and Eve were to avoid eating the fruit thereof. Now, what I want us to understand, and I don't know about you, there's so many things that are in Scripture that as I grew up, I would learn things that I thought were true that I'd find out later were not true. And one of the things that I learned, and it came through images that I saw, is that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was 
a source of evil, that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was evil. Well, we know that cannot be true. I mean, the images that I would see, it was that you know, the tree of life would be a, a wonderful tree and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would be a black tree with, you know, fruit on it representing darkness, you know? Well, that's just not true. Uh, the tree of the knowledge of evil, uh, good and evil was a good tree. And we say, well, how do you know that? Because the Bible says clearly in Genesis chapter 1 that everything that God created was good. The only thing that he created was, that wasn't said to be good was that when man was alone, the first man, he didn't have a companion of, that was like himself. And so God corrected that problem by making Eve. And so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it wasn't an afterthought by God. It wasn't placed there as an evil thing to tempt man. No, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a good thing. Everything that was created revealed the glory of God. And that theme runs consistently throughout the Old and New Testaments, that all of creation, that everything that God made was for his glory. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, the Bible says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. The revelation of God is clear in creation. It reveals his glory. Being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that mankind is without excuse. In other words, the revelation of the knowledge of God is so great in the creation of the world that you have to suppress the truth in order not to believe in God. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not any different. It revealed the glory of God. Now think about that. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil revealed the glory of God. It was unlike any other tree in that it was not created by God to provide sustenance for Adam and Eve. All the other trees were created for that purpose. Well, what was the purpose of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Well, definitely God had a knowledge of good and evil. He understood it. The tree served as a perpetual reminder to Adam and Eve that he was God and they were not. It's interesting that even before the fall of man, God understood our need as humankind to have memorials, to have these things that remind us of who God is and who we're not. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil served that purpose. It reminded them that they should trust God to determine how they should live. It reminded them that they were dependent on God. And I want you to understand that's a good thing. Today we have memorials in the church. One of those memorials is the communion. I want you to understand the communion is a good thing. In the church, it reminds us constantly as we partake of the communion that he is God and we are not. It reminds us that, that we are dependent upon God for our very lives. And so God set up in the Garden of Eden one tree that was a perpetual reminder to Adam and Eve that they were dependent upon God for their very lives. Pretty incredible. From the beginning of creation, mankind was created in the image of God, so mankind was created with a free will to either trust God and follow Him or live independently from God. And from the beginning, if mankind chose to, bless, uh, to trust God and follow Him, they would be blessed. And if they chose not to trust God and chose not to follow Him, if they chose to live independently of God, Mankind would be cursed. Well, Satan knew this. 
Satan knew if he could lead them to live independently of God, he could control them. It was as simple as that. Just lead the first man and the first woman to live independent of God, not to trust God for their life, and then he could control them. So he tempted them to do that which God forbids. And it's very important for all of us to understand that Satan gains control of mankind by tempting us to do that which God forbids. The second way that Satan gains control of mankind is Satan gained control of mankind by attacking their faith in God. Satan, from the very beginning, as we saw in the story, he used deception to break down their trust in God. And he hasn't changed in that strategy. He uses deception to break down mankind's trust in God. He doesn't want us to trust in God. Now, this deception that Satan used was twofold, and he continues to use it to this day. First of all, he said God would not judge them if they disobeyed him. God would not judge them if they disobeyed him in Genesis 3, 4. In other words, Satan is attacking the character of God, and he's saying to Adam and Eve, you can't trust God to be just. And then the second part of the temptation was God was withholding something from them that was good for them in Genesis 3, 5. He led them to believe it would make them wise like God and that God was withholding some kind of wisdom that he had that they needed. Life would be better for them if they lived independently of God is what Satan was telling them. Satan attacked, you see, their faith in God's justice and he attacked their faith in God's love. Satan hasn't changed his practices to gain control of people. He attacks our faith. He, takes our, he attacks our faith in God's justice. You won't suffer the consequences if you do that, which God forbids. And he attacks our faith in God's love, especially when we go through times of loss. God doesn't love you. Look at this. How could a loving God do this to you? Well, Satan's attack on the faith of Adam and Eve was successful. He undermined their faith. Satan is always seeking to undermine the faith of mankind, the faith of people. He undermined their faith, and they believed the lie. Rather than trusting God, Eve partake, partook of the fruit. Then she turned around and gave it to her husband. He disobeyed God. He didn't trust God. Adam and Eve, you see, lived in a perfect environment. And one of the things that we need to realize about spiritual warfare in the age that we live in is we need to say, you know, I don't live in a perfect environment. If you've learned anything from COVID-19, you ought to learn, hey, we don't live in a perfect environment, do we? But Adam and Eve did. They lived in a perfect environment. Think about that. Because of the trials that we experience, the truth is you and I are much more vulnerable to Satan's temptations than Adam and Eve. When we go through difficulties, difficulties in the Bible are called trials, we become susceptible and vulnerable to question what? The character of God. Is God just? Is God loving? He seeks to undermine our faith during the midst of trials so that we will give in to his temptations and do things that he doesn't want us to do. Satan gains control of us by attacking 
our faith in God. It's very important that you understand that's a part of his scheme and his plan. He doesn't just tempt us to do that which God forbids. He didn't do it in the story, right? He undermined their faith, their trust in God by telling them things that were not true. The third thing I want us to learn about how Satan gains control in this story is that Satan gained control of mankind by separating them from God. You see, Satan knew that what happened to him would happen to mankind and their descendants. He knew what God would do. He acted like God would not do anything, but he knew exactly what God would do. And well, how did he know it? Because it had happened to him. The Bible tells us in Revelation 12, verses 7 through 9, And war broke out in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast through the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. His followers were cast out with him. You know, Satan knew that what happened to him would happen to them. And once that happened to them, once they were separated from God, he could gain control. Now, church, listen to me very closely here. The Bible tells us that we should not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. There's a reason for that. Because today, as the members of the church of Jesus Christ, one of the ways that we experience the presence of God is through one another. In order for Satan to defeat us and lead us into temptation, all he has to do, one of his plans, is to separate us, to get us disconnected, to get us living independently. And certainly there's there's not been a greater trial on the church in my lifetime than the one we're going through right now. We absolutely need to understand what the plan of Satan is during this time. It's to separate us. You know, it's easier to lead a teenage girl against the authority of her parents than it is to lead one who's under the authority of her parents. She has greater protection under the authority of her parents than a girl who's out there living in rebellion. By leading Adam and Eve to rebel against God and separating them from God, Satan knew he would be successful in gaining control of their souls and the souls of their descendants. And so we need to understand that Satan gains control of mankind by separating us from God. And then the last thing I want to share with you this morning, and we're going to just sort of unpack this for a few minutes, so bear with me. This is very important to understand about Satan's plan and Satan's scheme in our life to gain control of us. Satan gained control of mankind by causing them to experience shame. I'm going to say it again. Satan gained control of mankind by causing them to experience shame. The Bible tells us that when Adam and Eve sinned, and they did that which God forbid, they immediately experienced shame. You remember, the Bible tells us that they were naked and not ashamed before the fall. But after the fall... When they sinned, they immediately experienced shame. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. You know, history is important. I want you to understand that shame, feelings of shame, was the very first ungodly feeling that Adam and Eve had ever experienced. Now, I wish that was 
I mean, <laughs> that's incredible. Just think about it. No, it wasn't hatred that they experienced first. You know, it wasn't resentment. It was shame that they experienced first. Now, I want you to understand that that's a significant part of the plan of Satan to control people's life is shame. Shame. You know, what is shame? Shame is a, a very painful feeling of humiliation. That's what shame is. And we see it in Adam and Eve after they fell. A very painful feeling of humiliation. It literally means to be disappointed in one's self. It can be caused by a variety of different things in our lives. Uh, as I look back on my life and the first time I experienced or remember experiencing significant shame, it, it came from the family I was living in. And, you know, we tend to form our identity based upon the family that we come from. And uh, many of you know my story and that my father was an alcoholic. And I can remember when I was five or six years old experiencing shame. And that's the first time I can remember experiencing shame. I was humiliated. I was humiliated by his behavior when I was five or six years old. There was other times in my life that I can remember experiencing shame. And uh, another time would have been uh, when I was about that age, my older sister uh, wanted me to try out for the mascot position at Northwest Classen High School. And so I, here I was, five or six years old, and I thought, okay, I'll do that, you know. I don't know if she gave me much choice. But you know what? I tried out for that, and I lost. And I remember experiencing shame when I lost. I, ex I experienced a feeling of humiliation that I didn't win. You know, that became a very important motivation in my life, that whole motivation of shame. In other words, I could feel shame anytime I lost. That made me very competitive. When you feel shame every time you lose, you don't want to lose. Perhaps you've watched the last dance with Michael Jordan over the last few weeks, or you've read stuff about him. One of the strongest motivations in his life was shame. He didn't want to experience shame. And for him, he had the capability to elevate himself as a basketball player to a place where he could not lose. It was incredible how much, he, how much talent he had and ability he had. Incredible motivation, though, that can come from feelings of shame. Not wanting to be disappointed in oneself. Shame can be caused by a consciousness of doing something wrong. We see that here in the story of Adam and Eve. And certainly I've had my fair share of shame in my life by doing things that are wrong. Shame can be caused by just foolish behavior. Boy, I've played the fool more than once in the course of my life and experienced incredible shame as a result of that, especially when I was a teenager. I uh, experienced some, a lot of shame from just foolish, foolish behavior. Shame can be caused by personal failure. Personal failure. And you know, for some people, that personal failure can be just about anything. It was for me when I was growing up. I felt shame when I made a B instead of an A. I was very highly motivated to make good grades because I didn't like to feel shame in my life. That was one of my strongest motivations in life, was trying to avoid shame. 
You know, shame can also be caused by the opinions of other people. And there definitely were times in my life, and maybe there have been in yours, where someone at school said something to you that was degrading to you, and you felt this sense of humiliation called shame. Or perhaps it came from a parent. Uh, whether it was intentional or unintentional, they said something to you, and you immediately experienced shame. Well, shame can be caused by lots of different things. But we need to understand that shame was not something that God created us to experience as his <laughs> highest of his creations. It's something that happened right away in mankind at the beginning of when mankind fell into sin. Shame can be very destructive to our soul. In fact, I've seen unresolved shame cause people to have feelings of great depression or anxiety or fear or terrible low self-esteem. Unresolved shame can lead to what many people don't identify to this, but it's really just self-hate. Unresolved shame can, uh, well, self-hate is the belief that I'm flawed, that I'm inadequate, that I'm wrong, that I'm bad, that I'm unimportant, that I'm undeserving, that I'm not good enough. And that can be a very destructive thing to our souls. It is a very destructive to thing to our souls when we have this self-hate. Shame can be very destructive to our behavior. Shame can be such a powerful motivation that it can become one of the chief motivations of our life. I've already told you how it motivated me and how it motivates many others to be very competitive. Shame can drive us to constantly perform for the acceptance and approval of other people. That's how powerful it can be in our soul. Shame can become the lens through which we see others and ourselves. And we can become very judgmental as human beings because of shame. Shame can cause us to do horrific things to ourselves. We can be deceptive and try to hide our sins like Adam and Eve did because of shame. We can abandon our responsibilities when we feel shame. <laughs> How often does that happen in our world? We can betray people because of our shame. We can be guilty of theft and steal in order to try to cover our shame. Certainly shame is one of the primary motivations for people who are addicts. Definitely shame has contributed to a countless number of murders. And I would tell you that shame is the uh, almost always present when someone commits suicide. It's shame. I'll never forget the day when I got a call from a friend and one of his friends had committed suicide and he wanted me to go with him to notify the father. And I agreed to do that. And so him and me and several others went to notify the father that the son had taken his life and committed suicide. When we got there, you can imagine what a terrible, terrible situation that was to be the one that was informing this father of what had happened to his son. And then we learned the whole story. And here was something that that father was going to have to live with the rest of his life. His son was struggling with addiction. And that day, before he took his life, he had sort of arbitrarily ran into his son and began to question him about what was going on in his life. And as he began to question him about what was going on in his life, he began to say things to him that he regretted. 
You know what happened? He created shame. That father created shame in the soul of his son. Maybe he didn't create it, but he added to it. And it was more than that son could bear. And that boy went home and took his life as a result of shame. That story has been repeated over and over and over again in our world. It will be repeated today. People will commit suicide today because of shame in their life. Shame in the Bible is compared to a stronghold in our soul that Satan can use to control or seriously influence the course of our life. So Adam and Eve felt this shame. What do you do when you feel shame? Well, you try to get rid of it. So Adam and Eve, they tried to get rid of the shame they were feeling in their soul. So they covered their nakedness. They came up with their own way to try to get rid of shame. They made some clothing out of fig leaves to try to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. And then they hid themselves from God. It's very rare for people who are really dealing with shame to come to church, I'm sorry to say. Because when they think of going to church, they think about the presence of God or they think about being judged by the people of God. And so they try to hide themselves from God. And then they blamed others for their failure. <laughs> Eve blamed the serpent. The serpent used, was used by Satan to tempt Adam and Eve. And then what did Adam do? Well, Adam blamed Eve. It was all about trying to deal with their shame. You know what? Secular therapists are very aware of the problem of shame. This is not something that is just revealed in the Bible about mankind. And there are many, there are countless self-help books that are written about shame by therapists. They're very popular, sold thousands and millions of copies. Secular therapists try to help their patients overcome their shame by helping them first identify the problem. Here's what's going on in you that's really affecting your soul. You're experiencing shame. And then they try to guide the people that they're giving therapy to to reconstruct how they view themselves. They advise people also to remove themselves from toxic relationships with people that cause shame. The problem with this secular approach is that they contradict what God says about the human race. The biblical truth is because of the fall of mankind, all of us are flawed, without exception. The only exception was a man by the name of Jesus. All of us are flawed. All of us are inadequate. All of us are wrong. All of us are bad. All of us are unimportant. And the truth is, all of us are unimportant. That's what the Bible says about the sinful condition of mankind. The Bible calls the human race sinners. God came up with that word. Sinners is what God calls the human race. The Bible calls us slaves to sin, calls us enemies of God. It says that we're fools. The Bible says we're unprofitable, says we're corrupt, says we're unclean, it says we're slaves of corruption, says that we're workers of iniquity, says that we're evil, it says that we're wicked. You see, the secular approach to shame does not offer a spiritual solution to the fallenness of mankind. What ends up happening ultimately is that some secular therapists mislead people to try and make themselves believe differently about themselves. Well, you're not really that way, you're this way. And they try to reconstruct the person's view about themselves. 
You know, it's interesting to me as we read this story that God in his love immediately provided a temporary solution for the shame of Adam and Eve. That's how important God knew it was. Do you remember what he did? And I pointed it out to you. He killed an animal and he took, he took the skins of the animal and he made clothing for Adam and Eve to replace their fig leaves. That was the heart of God. God understood what a powerful problem shame is in the souls of mankind, and he had provided for them a temporary solution. This act of God foreshadowed what God would eventually do to solve mankind's problem with shame. And church, listen to me. If we're going to be warriors, we've got to learn how to defeat shame. Because the devil's strategy hadn't changed at all. You know, if you have within you the spirit of the living God, you can't be controlled by the devil. When I say that, what I mean is you can't lose total control of yourself if you are in Christ. But I want you to know the enemy can still use shame to exercise incredible influence in your soul and in your life. And you've got to learn how to win that battle with shame. And I want you to know for me personally, and I... Just want to be, I, I fight that battle every day. I fight it every day of my life. This whole thing with shame in my life. But I'm determined to win that battle every day because I know what happens to me if I don't win it. If I give in, it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be pretty in the way I behave. It's not going to be pretty in my relationships if I give in to shame. So this act of God where he covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve it was a foreshadowing of what God was going to do to solve our problem with shame. And this is something that a secular therapist cannot offer you, that I'm offering you today. And I want you to know I've seen this work over and over and over again in my 35 years of ministry. Someone comes into my office and they've done something incredibly wrong and they're experiencing shame. And they're asking the question, will God ever forgive me for this? I mean, I can't tell you, <laughs> it, my office has been a parade over these 35 years of people who've entered in. And, I, and many of them, many of them have left free from shame after I told them what I'm getting ready to tell you. Jesus provided the only way for us to truly overcome shame that animal skin was pointing forward to what god was going to do through jesus christ to solve our problem with shame you say well, what did jesus do well first of all jesus satisfied the justice of god in acts 13 paul was preaching and he said therefore let it be known to you brethren that through this man and he's talking about jesus through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is, here's a very important biblical word, justified from all things, from all things, from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. From all things you can be justified. You know, shame can be caused by the knowledge that we're guilty. Guilty of something that we should not have done. 
You know, that comes from the fact that all of us are created in the image of God, and because we're created in the image of God, we have a moral conscience that knows right from wrong. You're not just a product of whatever society you were raised in. You were born with a moral conscience because you were created in the image of God that knows right from wrong. Whenever we do wrong, our conscience condemns us. And this condemnation causes within us feelings of humiliation. It causes feelings of shame. Our moral conscience condemns us the most when we're reminded that there is a God. Like our moral conscience is activated the moment I say there is a God. And if I say to you there is a God, then I say there, that God is holy. It activates your moral conscience. You begin to think about the things that you've done wrong in comparison to a holy God. And then if I say that God is righteous, righteous means that he is a judge who's going to judge righteously. That's what it means. In other words, you're going to have to give an account for everything that you've ever done, right or wrong. And so when I say there is a God and that God is holy and he judges righteously, what immediately happens is it activates what? It activates shame before this holy God. <laughs> well, I want you to know this is a problem if you're trying to get rid of shame because you can't escape the knowledge of God. As I said previously, all of creation reminds us that there is a God, that He is holy, and that He is righteous. It's in creation itself. And then there's preachers of the Word of God like me who are telling you that there is a God, He is holy, and He is righteous, and every person will have to give an account to Him for how they've lived their life. And immediately, when I say that to you, your conscience bears witness to that. Whether you agree with your mind or not, your conscience bears witness to that. And you feel shame. Well, to cleanse our conscience of this source of shame, Paul said Jesus justified us. Hallelujah. He justified us. The Bible says that Jesus experienced in himself the condemnation that we deserve for our sin. In other words, Jesus bore the guilt of our sins. And his death can give us the assurance that God does not condemn us. So that when I hear there is a God, he is holy, and he is righteous, I say hallelujah <laughs> instead of going, oh, woe is me. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus justified us. The word justified means to render, to render someone innocent. It means if you've believed upon Jesus, you've been rendered innocent of your sins. That you are not guilty. Hasn't been too long ago that a woman I visited with began to tell me about her past life. And in her past life, she began to tell me about some horrible things that she had done many, many years ago. And she said, Pastor, I just don't believe that God can forgive me. And I could understand why she would feel that way. Because the sins that she was telling me about were the sins of abortion. More than one of them. That she had hidden for all of her life that no one knew about. You know what I did? I began to tell her that Jesus paid it all. 
Now, she had received Jesus as her personal Savior, and she had already followed him in baptism, but she had never faced this fault in her history, in her past, and never confessed it. Confession is so important to receiving the forgiveness of God. Not that God is waiting for us to, to confess uh, as Christians before he gives us forgiveness. All of our sins were justified, were taken away when Jesus died on the cross. But it's us personally that can't experience that forgiveness until we admit we were wrong. And then that forgiveness that he has so freely offered to us through Jesus Christ becomes real to our soul. And so I was able to share with this person that those truths of being justified by faith. And all of a sudden she took a deep sigh of relief. I saw her whole body language change. And then she said, I feel so much better. She felt so much better because all I was doing was telling her that she was justified through the death of Jesus on behalf of her sin. By justifying us before a holy God, Jesus removed the reason for us to condemn ourselves when we're reminded that there is a God, He is holy, and He is righteous. In fact, we can celebrate God when we know that we've been justified by what Jesus did for us on the cross. But that's not all that Jesus did for us to remove shame. Besides justifying us, the Bible tells us that Jesus sanctified sinful men. Sanctify. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know, Paul said to the church at Corinth, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Very strong words here. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. You could add to the list nor pedophile, you could add to the list all kinds of things. And he says really strongly, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. But then he says this, and this is the truth of justification plus sanctification. And such were some of you. And then he says, but you were washed, but you were what? Sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of, of our God. You know, Shame is caused by the knowledge that we are flawed, that there is something wrong with us. And that's what the Bible teaches. It doesn't teach us that we're believing that we're flawed and we're not. It says that you are flawed, believe it. There's something terribly wrong with you. You are a sinner. We all know that we're sinners by nature and not just by choice. No one has to convince us to sin. We start doing it naturally before we ever remember our first sin. It does not matter how well we perform or how much we succeed. We know, we know, we know that we fall short of the glory of God. We know we're not what God intended us to be. And that creates shame. We're reminded that we're flawed every single time we fail. And that adds to our shame. But Paul said that those who are justified through Jesus are also sanctified by Jesus in verse 11. To be sanctified means to be made holy. Wow, that's what it means to be sanctified, to be made holy. It doesn't just mean to be set apart for holiness. It means to be made holy. It means to be made righteous like God. Jesus said this change in us would be caused by being born again of his spirit. That's what would cause this change. I mean, through his death, we're justified. Penalties paid. We're declared innocent. 
But through the birth, the new birth of the Spirit, Jesus said we would be sanctified, we would be made holy, we would be made righteous. Jesus made a promise to his disciples, and that promise was is that he would unite his spirit with the spirit of mankind, and he said this new birth would literally change their identity. He said we would become the very children of God through the reception of his spirit. Peter said to the church of Jesus that they were partakers of God's divine nature. Can you say it any clearer than what Peter said? You are partakers of God's divine nature if you've been justified, if you have received Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. Paul said to the church of Jesus at Corinth, who you were and what you were has ceased to exist. How about that one? Yeah, you were flawed, but who you were and what you were has ceased to exist. Paul said to the church of Jesus at Rome that they died with Jesus in Romans 6, 8. In other words, they were flawed, inadequate, wrong, bad, unimportant, undeserving, and not good enough. They were by nature fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, and extortioners. And like I said, you could add to the list murderers, rapists, rapists, and pedophiles. But Paul said what was true is not true any longer. He said, that's what you were. He told the church at Corinth that they were new creations in Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He said they were the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He told the church at Rome that they were raised with Christ to walk in the newness of life. Just as Christ was raised from the dead to walk in newness of life. He told the church that Jesus' life in them should change their view of who they were and free them from the shame. And that's the way it happens, folks, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't happen by your performance or your good works that you change your view of yourself and get free of shame. No way. It will not work. You'll be working from now until you die, and it won't work. The only way that you can change your view of yourself is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is it. There is no other solution for shame in us or for mankind. You see, they did not need a secular therapist in the church back in, when this was written to help them identify the problem that they had with shame and reconstruct how they view themselves. They did not need to remove themselves from toxic relationships with people that cause shame. They just needed to believe Jesus. That's all they needed to do. And folks, that's all we need to do too. Let's just believe Jesus to deal with the problem of shame in our life. Because he did it. He justifies us, and he sanctifies us. Paul called false ideas that we believe strongholds in our souls. In 2 Corinthians 10, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought captive in obedience to Christ. What Paul was saying is, if they believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, it would destroy the stronghold of shame in their soul. And if you haven't experienced that yet, what I would tell you, you're guilty of unbelief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you need to get rid of your unbelief and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he promised. 
Paul said that if they would believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, it would free them from Satan's power over them. You see, if he doesn't have that foothold of shame in your soul, he can't influence you like he wants to. Because so many times the things that he's tempting you to do are the result of your ongoing defeat by shame in your soul. When Satan or anyone else tried to shame them, they could resist by just saying, in Jesus' name, that is not true. I told you a few weeks ago I was going to tell you how I defeat the temptations of the devil. And it's really simple. I just say, in Jesus' name, that's not true. When he tries to shame me, it doesn't matter whether it comes directly into my mind or through other people. I just say, in Jesus' name, that's not true. He's contradicting the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. When they were tempted to do shameful things, they could resist by saying, in Jesus' name, look, that's not who I am. When Satan tempts you to do that, which God forbids, and you know it's something that God forbids, the way you defeat the temptation is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no magical formula that you need to learn other than the gospel of Jesus. And when you're tempted to do that, which which God forbids, you need to stand up and say, and I wish Adam and Eve would have said this, we'd all been better off, right? Hey, that's not who I am. In Jesus' name, that's not who I am. Now, I may feel that t temptation. I may feel that wrong desire. There's all kinds of things in my flesh that I feel that aren't of God. There's all kinds of emotions that I deal with that aren't of God in my life. But the way that you defeat the devil and you become a warrior for Jesus is you say, in Jesus' name, that's not who I am, period. That's not who I am. That's how Jesus defeated the temptations of the devil in the wilderness in Matthew 4, 1 through 11. It was all about his identity. And every time Jesus just stood up and proclaimed his identity, this is who I am. This is who I am. Do you know who you are based on the gospel of Jesus Christ? If Satan has gained control over your life, Jesus came and died to set you free. And so the decision you have to make this morning, if you're being controlled by the enemy, if you're being controlled by Satan, there's things in your life you just can't control. And you can go through all kinds of, all kinds of different ways to try to control it, and you'll never be successful just through behavior modification if the devil's involved. You need Jesus. You need to receive him for forgiveness of your sin. And you need to become a new creation in Christ. If you receive Jesus for the forgiveness of sin and there's still a stronghold of shame in your life, you need to change your view of yourself based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that the enemy's going to do everything he can to cause you not to believe what Jesus says is true about who you are and who he is to you. You need to repent of your unbelief if you really want to be free in the gospel of Jesus. And you need to what? You need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ because that's who you are in Christ. You can put on the Lord Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit has made you a partaker of his divine nature. You need to resist the devil and be the mighty warrior in Jesus that he has created you to be. So church, here's the challenge. And it was a challenge that goes clear back to the epistles. We read that this was a problem in the church at Corinth and all the churches that were being written to. Will you repent for your unbelief in the gospel of Jesus Christ? You say, well, I believed it when I was 10, 12, 15. But did you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, the whole message that you are in Christ, you are justified, and you are sanctified? Have you believed it? 
It's the only way to become a mighty warrior in Christ. I want to leave you with this. This is something that we give out to our members a lot. It's called Who I Am in Christ. I would encourage you to take this document, copy it, print it. You can get it off my sermon notes online. Put it on your refrigerator. If you need to, put it on your mirror at home where you can see it first thing in the morning. If you need to hang it from your ceiling when you're lying in bed, do it. Believe the truth of the gospel. And let's defeat shame. And let's rise up and become the mighty warriors that God has called us to be. Let's pray together. If you need to receive Jesus right now, I want to encourage you right now, receive him for the forgiveness of your sin. Believe upon Jesus that he died for your sins so that your sins could be forgiven once and for all, not by anything that you've done, but by what Jesus did for you. And I want to encourage you right now just to cry out to Jesus and believe upon him. If there's specific sins you need to tell them about, tell them about them. Don't carry them around for years like so many people do. Confess your faults if you need to do that in the process. But the most important thing is you go to Jesus and you trust him, you believe in him, you become his follower. Would you do that right now? And then, church, will you believe the gospel? That you are, yes, justified, but you are sanctified by your union with the Holy Spirit. You are a new creation in Christ. Every temptation that comes your way from the devil, it's contrary to who God has made you to be. You're no longer flawed. You are a saint of God. You are a royal priesthood in Him. You are a child of God. You're a child of the King. You have an inheritance that's unlike any inheritance that ever any man or woman's ever left their children. And that inheritance is found 100% in Jesus Christ and only in Jesus. Will you rise up, church, and start winning? And be the warrior that God has called you to be. Thank you, Jesus, for providing this way for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, from that message, it should be clear that we have an enemy. And he is seeking to destroy us through lies that cause us shame. And I just want you to know, whether you're listening online or you're here with us this morning, that what we know from this message and from the truth of God's word is that we're all broken people. We've all been broken by the lies of the enemy and he's caused destruction and harm to us. But that we don't have to be slaves to sin, to the enemy, to shame anymore. We can be set free through the power of Jesus. And I want you to know that there are groups of people in this church who are being intentional about meeting together all throughout the week in small groups. And the whole purpose of that is so that we can live life together to learn how to be the warriors God wants us to be, how to win these spiritual battles. It's not enough just to sit and to hear the message, man, God can stir us to action. But don't you hear, like as Pastor Jerry just shared, the need to do something? Like that it doesn't just stop right here, but there's a battle to be fought. There's a war to wage against the enemy. There's a faith we have to fight for. And what did, what did God say even before the fall of man, even before sin? It is not good that man would be alone. We need other voices in our life, other warriors who are calling us up. And I just wanna encourage you right now, if you're online or if you're in here, if you're not in a small group, 
it is not hard to connect to one. I know it can feel daunting sometimes, like, oh, man, I, I don't know a lot of people. I'm, I'm not familiar. I, I, but I want you to know it's really easy because the people in our small group just love people. And they want to connect with you. They want to get to know you. And they want to join that fight of faith with you. So if you're online right now and you'd like to join a small group, the simple way to do it is just comment and say, I'd like to join a group. And we'll have some people reach out to you. They'll see you comment and they will invite you to their group. And then um, you can also go to westernhillschurch.com and click on the right now page. There's a connect card towards the top of that page. And one of the options as you fill out that card is I would like to connect to a small group. And you can do that if you, if you need to connect to a small group. If you fill that out, um, I'm our small group pastor. My name is Brandon Werner, and I'll contact you personally this week if you fill out that connect card and help you get connected to a group. And then if you were being started to say, yeah, I know that I'm battling unbelief. I need to believe the whole gospel. You can go fill out that connect card and say, I need to talk to someone about knowing Jesus. And we will follow up with you this week and get in touch and help you in your journey there. And then if you're in this auditorium and you would like to connect with us, uh, you can fill out that connect card online or there are some at that table back there. You just pick one up, fill it out, and uh, you can drop that in one of these boxes around the auditorium and we'll, we'll get that connect card tomorrow morning first thing and give you a call. But you know, maybe one of the easiest ways is if you're trying to connect to a group and, uh, and you're in here, how many of you are already in a small group? Just raise your hand. Just ask any one of these people, basically everyone in here that I'm seeing almost. So, uh, so ask any one of these people and uh, they'll be happy to invite you to their small group as well. And then while we're on that point, um, since I mentioned the boxes already, I just want to encourage you, if you're wanting to give this morning and give uh, cheerfully and bring in your tithes and offerings to the Lord, then I just want to encourage you that you can give. Um, if you're online, you can give online at westernhillschurch.com. Or if you're in here, you'll notice we took all the pens and papers out of the back of the chair. That was just trying to help limit the spread of germs. You can go to the connect table back there and find those. And if you need a pen, uh, just keep the pen. If you can use your own pen, do that. But if you need the pen, you can just keep the pen. That'll help us with that as well. So before we conclude, just a couple more quick announcements. Justin Werner is going to come and just make sure that we're staying up to date. And there's a special announcement about Wednesday night that we want to make sure you especially hear. Thanks, Brandon. Just in light of this message, I am one that really battled shame in my life. And I was about 19, 20 years old when God actually used this message from Pastor Jerry in my life to break me free from shame. And one of the things that has really helped me is staying connected to other people because it's really easy to forget the gospel and to apply that truth into our life. And it's really easy to wander from that. And so the goal of these announcements is really just to get you connected to other people so that you can get connected to God. And we know that we're, we're better together and we grow together. Whenever we grow closer together, we grow closer to God. And we, when, we, when we grow closer to God as the church, we grow closer to each other. So a few things. One thing is we're slowly merging back, as some of, many of you guys know, because you're here. You already know that. But many of you online may not know that. And we're doing that in phases. And we understand that each one of you will have individual circumstances um, that are unique to you. And so we want to just give you the freedom to make that choice of what's best for you. But we're really glad to see all of you guys here today. There's a new uh, three-week series coming up for midweek on Wednesday nights, and Jack Clay will be leading that. It's called The Lessons on Liberty, and this is from Jack. He says, in light of the crisis that is going on in the world today, people are longing to be free. God's Word has much to say about freedom and what liberty truly is. 
According to the Declaration of Independence, liberty is an unalienable right given to us by God. So what is liberty, and how do we experience liberty in our daily lives? Join us in the next few weeks as we look into God's Word and see what it says about liberty. Now, one of the things that I've learned in my young life is the value of learning from the wisdom of people older than me. And taking the time to learn from wise men and women has helped propel me in a successful direction in many areas of my life. And I want to challenge you to take this time on Wednesday to learn from Jack Clay, who knows the topic on lessons from, on liberty very, very well and has lived a life that is uh, worth following. So I want to challenge you to tune in for that. If you're new with us, join us every Sunday at 10.30 a.m. here live on Facebook or on Wednesday nights at 5.30 p.m. We have one for children, a live stream. At 6 o'clock p.m., we have one for students. And at 6.30, we'll have midweek with Jack Clay that's starting this week, uh, Lessons on Liberty for Adults. If you want to connect with us, another way to do that is just email info at westernhillschurch.com, and a pastor will get connected to you if you just want to make it simple and email that uh, email address. Or you can call our church office at 405-634-1454. And as always, we are a church without walls. How? Well, the church isn't made up of services once a week, but of a people who are, on, who are disciples of Jesus on mission together. Will you join us? Will you get connected? Will you stay connected and beat this battle on shame and so many other battles that we face in this world? Let's do it together, church. Lastly, right after this service, uh, we're going to start a countdown timer to the Children's Bible Zone online. We hope that uh, you'll join us for that online, and any of you who are here who want to stay for that, feel free to stay, and we'd love for you to be a part of that. Thank you so much for joining us today. That wraps up our service. God bless you, and have a great afternoon.